So got to meet Kat at the start of the pandemic and uh, uh, just, oh my God, fucking what a great group and people like Kat and Tony and Mikey. The list is endless, but Kat is at the top of the fucking list. So thank you, Kat. Thank you. Uh, should I go ahead and start, I suppose? Thumbs up. All right. Well, my name is Kat and I'm an alcoholic. Um, my sobriety date is June 20th, 2017. And my home group is uh, Oh My God, or our mostly agnostic group of drunks. I actually took time to write down my story, which made me super tired. So I woke up from a nap pretty recently after said writing down all of these things. Um, because revisiting it can be um, a little draining, I would say. So I'm just gonna read from this and I might add as I go through. Um, so alcohol alcoholism runs deep in my family. I am the first person my parents are aware of who sought help through a 12-step program. Um, even though both of my grandfathers were alcoholics, my dad's dad was verbally and sometimes I think physically abusive and drank and smoked a lot until he died of Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1993. He was 69 or 70 years old. Um, my mom's dad was a long haul trucker and a heavy drinker. And family lore has it that he hit his wife once and then quit drinking. Um, if you're like me, I don't really tend to believe that it was just one time and um, seems a bit rose-colored of an origin, origin story that he just quit drinking after that. Um, but that's what I'm told. Um, he lived to be 97 and he just passed away in 2020. And uh, I had a pretty close relationship with him. And uh, I do have one cousin who took his own life in 2011. And we found out later that he had late stage cirrhosis from drinking. And um, besides these, I am sure there's hidden alcoholism throughout my family tree. Um, my, my dad's mom would drink uh, sherry or cooking wine regularly and we would like mark x's on the bottoms of the bottles uh, to find out if it was the same one that we left with her and it was never the same one a few days later um so yeah she was a heavy drinker and she lived to be 92 um so even though we have alcoholism we also have long longevity <laughs> in our line. Um, growing up, I was quiet and awkward, and I didn't enjoy unfamiliar situations. I felt uneasy with loud interactions. Like, I remember as a kid uh, having to shout across the table at lunch because all the other kids were also shouting across the table, and it made me really uncomfortable. I was never particularly popular kid. I was uneasy in my own skin and constantly being told by other children and my own mother that I was too pale. Um, they actually called me ghost in elementary school. <laughs> Couldn't think of a more inventive name, I guess. 
Uh, I did finally have my first boyfriend and my first kiss the summer before my senior year of high school. But again, I was really uneasy always in my own skin and felt awkward in pretty much every social situation. In college, towards the beginning of my freshman year, there were um, these boys in my dorm, friends of mine, who told me I shouldn't be afraid of alcohol because I never drank until college. Uh, I shouldn't be afraid of alcohol and that it's not this monster that I need to hide from. So at the age of 18, I had my first drink. It was spiced rum and Dr. Pepper. <laughs> uh, I was living in Texas, going to University of North Texas in Denton. It made me feel relaxed. And as I progressed through college, so did my relationship with alcohol. The first bump in this blossoming relationship uh, between myself and alcohol came during my sophomore year of college. I was a few weeks, it was a few weeks before my 20th birthday. I had just broken up with my first serious boyfriend a month before. I felt unloved and directionless, even though I was the one who ended things. Um, I lived in an apartment with three other women. Our apartment was never really, it, it never really felt like a safe space. And a few months before, one of my roommates and I actually had gotten into a fist fight. <laughs> when I, um, when she was in a blackout and I was surprisingly sober, that is unrelated to alcohol. Uh, we just had a terrible relationship. Our apartment was never clean and it always smelled like weed. So on this particular night, we had all planned to throw a party. The year was 2009. So invites were distributed by Facebook and via text. The tiny 4-2 was packed and I quickly got very drunk playing beer pong and doing shots. Because I was newly single, any tall, semi-attractive man, I was making out with them, at least two or three different guys. And for reference on tall, I am 5'10". So I, uh, I always look for the tall man in the room. <laughs> Um, so then the alcohol hit all at once and I remembered the room spinning and throwing up and then darkness. I woke up in my bed and it was quiet and the party was over, but I felt aggressive hands in my pants and under my shirt. And I turned my head because the hands just felt like they were coming out of this dark void behind me. And I looked into the face of someone I had never seen before. And I freaked out and I screamed for this stranger to get out of my room, which he did. And then I didn't know what to do with myself. I felt violated and responsible for this violation due to my frivolous behavior at the party. I called my ex-boyfriend and he let me sleep at his place because I didn't feel safe where I was. He told me I should get a rape kit done, so I did. He took me to the hospital for that. There thankfully was no evidence of rape, but I still called my parents to tell them what happened. My mom started crying on the phone and shared that she knew what this violation felt like because as a child, she was molested by a close family friend. 
which is why she always took so much care to avoid the same fate for myself and my brothers. She watched us like a hawk. I also called my roommates to tell them what happened, and my one roommate said, with my behavior at the party, she didn't know if I wanted him in my room or not, and that I should really think hard about what this would do to him if I pressed charges. Those weren't the words that I needed to hear in that moment, and I retreated far into myself for a few months. After this first rocky time, alcohol and me went on a short break just for a couple months. But I was 19, about to turn 20, so I wasn't going to give up on alcohol yet. Once the lease was up at this apartment, I was craving a safe spot. I found it in my sorority house. Um, men were not allowed above the first floor, and alcohol was supposed to not be there either, but wink, <laughs> we definitely drank in the sorority house. This was what I needed. Junior year was great, but I did have a few miscalculated blackouts. Notably, there was one time where I found out months later that at this party at my friend's house that I had thrown up in their sink. And when I found out about it, I went and apologized to them, even though it had happened six months before. And they were like, it's okay. <laughs> I was like, sorry about that. Um, so after the sorority house, I moved in to a mansion with my friends, um, my friend's mom, Lauren. Um, Lauren's mom was renovating and restoring. So there were seven of us in this massive house and I loved it even though there was construction all the time. Um, with this house came massive parties, but I felt safe. And while here, I also had a few blackouts and there's still one night during this time that I, I have no idea how I got home. I interviewed a bunch of people. It was after a party. I did not have a ride. I woke up with massive bruises on my feet. Um, and I still don't know how I got home. I could have logically walked, but it was a few miles. While in the mansion, I started seeing Kyle, who was this beautiful scene boy who graduated high school with me the same year. And I, um, I had a crush on him in high school, but I was not comfortable in my own skin, so I hadn't talked to him. But uh, we started dating in 2011. And we dated exclusively for about a year, and then he broke up with me, which felt like someone had literally ripped out my heart. And at the same time, I was also going through a friend breakup with Lauren, my best friend, whose mom's house we lived in. So. Uh, because she had allowed her boyfriend at the time to just start living in our house and it caused a rift. So going through this breakup, going through this friend breakup, um, my lease was up with Lauren's mom's house. And so I decided to move into an apartment by myself. And again, I felt unloved and directionless. I was working full-time as an assistant manager at a movie theater. The year is now 2012. So I move into this studio apartment by myself on a six-month lease. 
I purposely chose an apartment that was within walking distance to the bars in Denton, Texas. When I found out during that time that there was a rapist in the area attacking women, I armed myself with a can of travel hairspray and a lighter, which totally works as a flamethrower. I never had to defend myself against a potential rapist, but I did take it out for demonstrations while out at bars and parties during this six month period. I regularly brought pretzel sticks and Nutella with me to parties as a drunk snack. And those six months living alone, my apartment was always clean, but I was usually drunk. During this time, I drove home with a one night stand and popped my tire parking for the first time. It was the first drunk driving incident, but it wasn't the last. Throughout my six months living alone, I would black out many times and also have a lot of one night stands. Early in my lease, I talked with my dad and he expressed how worried he was that I didn't have any family close by. And after this traumatic breakup, maybe I should move close to family for more support. My parents at the time lived near Minneapolis and I knew that they didn't want to stay there. My oldest brother and his family still lived outside of Cleveland, Ohio, where I grew up. And my other brother and his wife lived near Orlando, where I knew my parents wanted to end up, so I chose there. A few weeks before my move to Orlando, where I would be living with my brother and his wife, they called me to tell me they were expecting a child. So it was a mixed bag to me, because while I was happy for them, it was a, putting a timer on how long I could stay with them. So I selfishly was just thinking, shit. I ended up living with them for seven months before moving into a house with uh, a woman named Marina and a man named Logan um, near downtown Orlando. And that year, 2013-ish, I walked downtown to the bars many times with my friends and there were a few blackouts. Also during this time, I started seeing a psychologist who referred to me who referred me to a psychiatrist, and I was put on Zoloft for anxiety and depression. With this new prescription, my blackouts became more frequent. I often would not know how to how I got home the night before. And then after my lease was up at this downtown house, I moved in with a couple named Trevor and Ashley. Uh, I liked living with them, even though they tended to fight a lot. They liked to drink like I did, and we often would go to a local bar called The Falcon. In early 2015, um, Ashley and Trevor were getting married, and I was getting a puppy, the puppy that's sitting on my lap right now. And because of these two truths, I decided that I needed to find a new place. My father had some money to invest, so I convinced him that a property in Orlando would be a good investment, which this house has doubled in value over the past eight years. I moved into what would come to be my home, the one I sit in currently in May of 2015. My dear Taylor Swift was born in January of 2015, and I brought her home with me in March. Because of my propensity for blackouts, uh, due to the combination of Zoloft and alcohol and my uneasy stomach uh, when I would do this, I would often wake up to the sound of my dog licking my vomit off the floor. This is a sound that still haunts me now that I never want to hear again. <laughs> During this time, I was late to my shifts at Best Buy. 
um, where I sold appliances too often than was acceptable. My boss there was very much into rules and all my write-ups were related to my tardiness. And my tardiness was directly linked to my drinking. One morning when I knew I was on final warning and was 15 minutes late, I punched in, like I did like a um, thing where you, uh, you're able to edit the punch and say like, oh, this thing happened and I wasn't able to punch in on time. So I did that and I punched in at the acceptable five minute late window and wrote a note saying that it took the asset protection person a few minutes to let me in, which was a lie. And I could feel the blood pounding in my ears as I wrote it, but I needed this job. So what, what else could I do? Um, a week or so later, my by the book manager called me into the office and asked me about it. It's like I had been waiting for someone to just call me out on my shit. I immediately, without hesitation, told the truth. I had lied to save myself and felt awful about it. And he said he liked me as a person and as an employee, I always did my job well, but my tardiness and lifestyle that caused it were troubling and that I should probably watch myself. So now I'm on double secret probation <laughs> at Best Buy. And I was on time for a while until August of 2015. So August, 2015, I think it was the 28th or the 29th. My friends and I drove out to Cocoa Beach and we hung out on the beach and drank most of the day. And then later we went to a live taping of an NXT wrestling match. Cocoa Beach is about an hour or so drive from Orlando. So I stopped drinking before we went into the wrestling match. And so after the after there were a couple hours. We got back to Orlando and decided we should go to karaoke because it is a Friday night and the smoke-filled bowling alley near my house had karaoke on Fridays. Um, so since I had my puppy at home, I thought it'd be best for me to drive myself because it would be easier for me to go home afterwards. So it was only a five-minute drive from my friend's house to the bowling alley. At the light where I needed to turn left, it was green only, not a green arrow. And I decided to try to turn quick before the other traffic and my tires squealed. And wouldn't you know it, somebody was there to see this happen. And I hope that you can still hear me when it, the rain's really nuts. Um, I continued to drive around the block until I reached the bowling alley. And as I parked, I saw police lights behind me. I blew a .114 at the police station and had to spend the night in a large octagonal room with other such drunkards. There were a handful of college-age girls in my row of chairs. It was literally just rows of chairs with uh, a few phones scattered throughout phones that you could only call local numbers on. Um, the fun thing is you can still call out to a long distance number and it will, will connect and tell the person on the other end that an inmate at 
the correctional facility is trying to call them and you can hear them talking on the phone, but they can't hear you. And that happened when I tried to call my parents before I got arraigned. My mom was not thrilled, but I got arraigned pretty quickly. I was able to call her and let her know that I'm okay and my friends had posted my bail. So these college-age girls from UCF, because um, the local college had started back, I think it was a week before classes, they were all there for like underage drinking. There was a woman in the row behind me who fell asleep and peed herself. And all of these college girls were afraid to tell anyone. And so I had to go up to a guard and tell them that there was a puddle of urine on the floor. I felt constantly dehydrated, just cotton mouth the entire time and no food was given. I was released on bail at the end of the eight hours. And since I was now without a license, my roommate drove me to work. That's right, I was scheduled to no open at Best Buy. <laughs> So when I was getting released from jail, I called the store from the, the out tape lobby part of the jail. And I told them that I was experiencing car trouble, which was true to a certain extent. Um, I was 45 minutes late to work that day. And as soon as my manager was present, I pulled him aside and told him the truth. And he said he appreciated my honesty. But a couple weeks later, I was fired because this much dirtiness was unacceptable and they had sent it up through corporate and they had to let me go. But they said they liked me and in six months I could reapply. <laughs> Though distraught at the time because I was jobless um, and couldn't get severance because I was fired with due cause. And it felt like my life was falling apart. I was thankful to be out of retail and I haven't gone back since. Because of the low BAC that I blew and having no previous offenses, I was able to go through pretrial diversion with my DUI. So I had to take certain classes, court-ordered AA with other people who were also court-ordered, which was not helpful at all because everyone thought that they didn't need to be there, and community service, which was at a park um, picking up trash and it's actually kind of nice. <laughs> I got all these things done really quickly. And by the end of 2016, so like a year later, I was done with all of it. To not put myself in danger of drunk driving, I tried to take Uber and Lyft. This caused the first person in my life to address my problem drinking, my mother. I was still financially dependent on my parents, so they saw my credit card statements. And so needless to say, I brushed this off and told her that I was just being responsible and that I was taking a Lyft or an Uber uh, when I thought I'd have even one drink, you know, just to watch out. Knowing that my mom was watching my expenses though, I got to drunk driving again. Um, there were at least three times I woke up to a flat tire and I would withdraw cash so that my mom wouldn't see where I was spending the money. She would just see that cash was withdrawn. Uh, whenever I got these flat tires, I had AAA and my mechanic was down the road. So I just had it AAA tow me to my mechanic. 
and I always got the tire insurance. So I just had to pay like $15 to renew the insurance on the new tire because it was road hazard. This reckless, reckless way of doing things continued for a year, almost two. So even after my DUI, this continued. On January 1st, 2017, I ate only Brussels sprouts for dinner. The night before New Year's Eve, I had not, I had not drank because I had choir the next morning and I was a responsible member of the church choir. But New Year's Day was a Sunday and Monday was a work holiday, so I was looking to go out. There was this place called The Matador and they had beer and whiskey specials. It was like $5 for a beer and a whiskey together. Um, so I went out with a few friends and played pool. And apparently those Brussels sprouts made a second appearance as I threw them up in the parking lot. And my friend Trevor of Trevor and Ashley took me home. I ended up showering with my clothes on and throwing up on my carpet. And as Trevor was getting a towel to clean up, I was laying on my back. And Trevor told me the next day that I had briefly been choking on my vomit as I tried to throw up as a result. Even with this near-death experience, it took me another six months, almost seven, to realize it was time to stop. During this time, I tried ways of moderating my drinking. I would make tally marks on my wrist to show how many drinks I had, but past four, I would tend to forget to keep counting. I also tried limiting my drinks to two per hour. This strategy was effective, but I would chug down the two drinks, then spend the remainder of the hour eagerly watching the clock. And it's like clock, like the time will go by a lot slower if you're watching. <laughs> so it was effective um, because it held me to an actual limit, but I never had a good time when I was moderating it this way. So on June 20th, 2017, I had a date with a man named Simon. He was just my type. He was 6'4", with a sardonic sense of humor. We met at the Falcon, my usual haunt, and I took two shots of rum before I left my house, and I drank one beer before he even arrived. I quickly blacked out, and Simon made sure I got home okay, but obviously had no interest in future dates. The next day at work, I felt like a failure. I wanted to stop self-sabotaging, and I was sick of always waking up regretting the night before. I wondered what my old boyfriend from college days was up to, Kyle. And I looked him up on Facebook and found out he was married. <laughs> and I was devastated. The thought of getting shit-faced that Friday night crossed my mind, but I decided to look into AA meetings instead. So June 23rd, 2017, I went to my first meeting by myself. It was at Central Orlando Group, and it was a candlelight meeting. So in the darkness of this room with strangers, I announced, Hi, my name is Kat, and I think I may have a problem with alcohol. And I told the story of my near death on New Year's Day, and I cried. The next meeting I went to, I said, hi, my name is Kat, and I'm beginning to realize I may be an alcoholic. By the third meeting, I was comfortable with the label. A week or two into my sobriety, 
I met Meredith um, from Oh My God at a ladies meeting and she told me about our mostly agnostic group of drunks or Oh My God. Um, I told her that the kitschy name scared me a bit, but I myself being an agnostic was intrigued. Oh my God, though dominated by male energy, quickly became my go-to meeting and home group. I found my first sponsor, Holly, there, and she helped me to navigate through the literature with an atheist lens. We worked through the steps using the big book, the 12 steps and 12 traditions, and the atheist guide to AA as supplemental reading. So next I kind of went through the different steps and how I connected with them. So step one, it was easy for me to see my life was unmanageable. I couldn't have just one drink. I was always justifying just one more, just one more, just one more, and on and on. Two, I knew I couldn't do this alone and sharing and relating to other alcoholics would be my greatest asset. Three, came to believe that this program was changing me in the best ways by connecting with other alcoholics. Four, made a fearless moral inventory, which had a lot of self-hate and shame in it, something that I still have to work on and constantly do. Five, sharing this with my sponsor was like having a thousand pound weight lifted from me. I no longer felt like an unlovable and unworthy piece of shit. Six and seven, I made a list of my faults and they are still present, but every day I work to be aware of and counter them. Eight, made a list of the people who I had wronged. Nine, made amends. Much of my list was living amends, especially in regards to my family and friends. When it came to ex-boyfriends, it consisted of writing letters that I didn't send. Um, I also wrote a letter to myself, which was really needed, um, apologizing and telling myself that I am worthy. My best buy manager, I set up a time to apologize to him for my past behavior directly. And that went really well. 10. Continuing to keep my side of the street clean. 11, um, I am not good at meditation in the traditional sense, but I find knitting and crochet while listening to an audiobook or a podcast to be therapeutic. Also working on jigsaw puzzles, working out routinely at the gym. Um, I tend to take naps if I am tired. Uh, I like to refer to them as my daily siesta. <laughs> Um, and I do watch a lot of films, which gives me comfort as well. Twelve. Around the time that I hit a year of sobriety, I started bringing a meeting into a women's treatment center with a few other ladies from a local group. This meeting was every Friday night at seven, and it became part of my routine. I was scared to start sponsoring. But Holly told me that it'd be good for me to take another alcoholic through the steps and to remember that if someone else relapses, it is not my fault. I was so scared <laughs> that I was going to do something wrong. She also disclosed that I was the first of her sponsees to make it through all 12 steps and to be consistently on the wagon. 
So I began working with ladies in the treatment center and brought this meeting in every week until this thing happened in 2020 <laughs> where everything shut down. Uh, you may have heard of it. It was COVID. Before that, it was tough um, sometimes working through the steps with these ladies because they had so much more trauma in their past. Um, and they were also dealing with harder drugs a lot of times. So I learned a lot about things that I had not known before, um, the opioid um, epidemic, um, things relating to methadone and how people are kept on methadone even when they're pregnant, because if you completely just go cold turkey on methadone when you're pregnant, you will miscarry. Um, those are things that I did not know before. So yeah, it was an interesting time to, to learn about other people and uh, connect with others that I, I wouldn't normally cross paths with. So the pandemic affected my recovery in life in a lot of ways. It disrupted my routines that I had in place. The um, treatment center every Friday, I was no longer going there. Um, I also was not able to go to the gym and work out outside the house. Um, couldn't go physically to the movie theater, which I usually went to regularly. Um, and it also impacted like how I sought connection in recovery. So my home group, oh my God, decided to start an online meeting and we sort of had to figure things out as we went. And I hosted the meeting a lot, like pretty often since we had a huge lack of estrogen in our line lineup in the beginning. So I uh, usually was hosting at least once a week at the start. But out of this awful and unprecedented situation spawned something beautiful. I now have four sponsees, three of which live thousands of miles away from me who are all picking up their three-year medallion within the next few months. My sponsor lives in Annapolis, but I connect with her weekly. I have two sponsees who are currently going through the steps. So if you're keeping count, I've got six sponsees currently. Uh, one has six months. The other will be at a year in a couple weeks. Um, even though their sobriety is wholly their own, I feel so grateful and blessed to be even a small part of it. All of the things that I gained from AA, I think that of all of the things that I gained from AA, I think that working with others and connecting deeply with other alcoholics is the most important aspect of my recovery and its success thus far. And that is what I had to share. Capping out in about 30, 35 minutes. Pretty good, right?